This is Effed Up, a conversational podcast about injustice, true crime, and rosé. Season one of Effed Up is a story about the corruption in one state's crime lab. Listeners are advised that this podcast contains opinions that are our own. All right, we're gonna record episode 107. The audit is still effed up. Part two. It's not 11 in the morning, and we're drinking rose. He <laughs> <laughs> <Keep> is asleep. <laughs> I was pet. Oh, was I supposed to talk? No, I no. was petting Nima. Oh, he was petting the cat. Anyway, hello. Hello. Hi. 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 How's your guys' week? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so great. We don't have that written in the script this week. <laughs> we have, hello, how are you, and welcome. At first, I read that, and I thought it was like, welcome, meaning like as a response to thank you. And I was like, <laughs> how is she implying that somebody's thank like, thank you, you and welcome. <laughs> Should we just get right into it? Let's just do it. Where we last left off was super depressing. <laughs> Let's dive right back in. <laughs> I mean, it's not like this episode is going to be cheerier, but it's not going to be as rough as last week. Well, I mean, listen, it's not like we called this podcast like a fucking ray of sunshine. Like, it's called effed up. Yeah. People aren't coming to this for like, you know, rainbows and puppies, although we do love those things. I love yeah. rainbows and, and puppies. And kittens. I know, and kittens. Yes, we wouldn't be doing a podcast if everything worked in the system. <laughs> exactly. We're celebrating the system. Totally different mm-hmm. podcast. All right. Wait, did we say our names? Oh. No. <laughs> we did not. <laughs> Hi. 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 Hi, everybody. I'm Jessica Borges. I'm Priya Hubbard. I'm Keith Burke. Anyway, we're going to start off, as usual, with a little recap. Greg Taylor's case set off a huge series of events, including Attorney General Roy Cooper calling for an audit of the SBI crime lab, which we covered at length in the last episode, but we're also going to do here. Because on August 18th, 2010, after a five-month review, the independent audit was actually completed and the report was released by a couple of former FBI guys, Chris Swecker and Michael Wolf. And the report of the audit revealed that there were 230 cases of potential wrongdoing inside the lab. And as mentioned in the last episode, the first part of the audit is fucked up. We started looking into those cases and found that there were four different categories of complete fucked upness. So the first one was out of more than 15,000 cases, 932 files were fully reviewed and 230 of these files contained at least one instance where the lab notes reflected that a positive presumptive test for the presence of blood was followed by a confirmatory test that yielded results that were negative, inconclusive, or no result. And this information was not included in the final report. The second phase concentrated on the confusing language in these reports. These were similar cases to Greg Taylor. So then there was a third category where there were the misleading reports, which stated that no further tests were conducted when, in fact, one or more confirmatory tests was conducted with negative or inconclusive results. And then in the fourth and final phase, they looked at the misrepresented final reports. This phase, which the report states is the most serious, and as we mentioned, like that other shit isn't serious, this is the phase 
that involves cases in which the reported actual results of the confirmatory test were overreported or not reflective of the results contained in the lab's notes. So it's also important to remember that Chris Wecker mentioned in the report that it's possible that the cases on the list resulted in fuckery when it came to people pleading guilty or an inability for a defense attorney to have a fighting chance with the case. And this seemed to come into play with a case we covered last week, Derek Allen, And it also seemed to come into play with another man that we mentioned at the very end of the last episode who was listed under Category 2 that covered the really confusing report where it seemed like there was blood evidence found or identified, but, you know, like, it was not. The thing that stuck out to me about the report was that there were so many different kinds of fuck-ups that they had to categorize them. Right, yeah. (laughs) Like, that was like, oh, like, I mean, it's, I you get, you make mistakes and things like that, but, like, to actually, like, be so consistently like messing up up or screwing up or fucking up Mm -hmm. that like there's enough there's enough times of certain things that you break it down into categories like oh fuck up number one fuck up number two Mm -hmm. fuck up number three and that there's not like oh that happened once each one had like dozens of times that that specific fuck up happened yeah yeah it's not a good look a little upsetting yeah it's a little fucked up points for consistency though (laughs) question mark bravo well done yay yay now we're all caught up and here we go with the audit is fucked up part two so on the night of july 22nd 1993 daniel green went to a cookout where he ran into his buddy larry demery the cookout went long and at around 1 30 a.m demery asked if daniel wanted to come with him to new york where he had to make a delivery which seems like an odd request this all feels weird i feel like that that's a alcohol driven mm. Alcohol, I feel like it's a different substance. Drugs? Something. Yeah. I, Something, because like... nobody is like, hey, let's drive to New York City from North Carolina at 1 a.m. Yeah. yeah. Sober. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's already off to a not great start. We asked him to come to New York where he had to make a delivery. Daniel didn't, so Demery decided to go on his own. He headed out, and he returned a few hours later freaking out. So much so that when Demery asked for Daniel's help, Daniel went with him, not knowing what he was about to get into. Okay. All right. So that same day, July 22nd, 1993, a man named James Jordan attended the funeral of a friend in Wilmington, North Carolina. It's possible the name of this man sounds familiar. His son, Michael, is pretty famous for playing basketball. But, but I, I mean, mean, everybody knows who yeah. Michael Jordan like is. the king. So at about 1230 in the morning, James Jordan headed home. He had about a two-hour drive ahead of him. He may have gotten sleepy because he pulled off the highway to take a nap. So now let's fast forward to August 3rd, 1993. A fisherman discovered a body in a remote swamp in South Carolina. It appeared the body had been in the water for about a week. On August 5th, 1993, the sheriff's department in Cumberland County, North Carolina, was alerted that there was an abandoned and stripped Lexus found. It belonged to James Jordan. Okay. Despite Jordan's family not having heard from him since June 22nd, no one had filed a missing persons report. Four days later, on August 7th, 1993, the coroner in Marlboro County, South Carolina, cremated the remains of the unidentified body of what? James Jordan, which is super fucked up. Well, wait, so they didn't identify it as him. They just burned the body. Mm-hmm. That seems suspect. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, he did preserve the jaw and hands to identify the individual. And sure enough, on August 13th, the teeth were matched to James Jordan. Because back on June 22nd, 1993, when Daniel had agreed to help Demery, he didn't know what he was about to help with. 
And it wasn't until they got to Demery's car that night that Demery admitted he needed help with moving an unidentified body. So I just want to oh. inter- <laughs> Yeah. Yikes. I just want to interject real quick. I'm really sorry, but there are only a few folks that I would do this for, help move an Id- unidentified or even identified body. I and just it- think body in general. Yeah. yeah. And it appears that Demery and Daniel sort of had that kind of relationship. So cool. Yeah, I'd be like, bro, we are not that close. <laughs> yeah. These guys do these these guys do go way back though. They knew each other since they were little when Daniel moved to North Carolina from Philadelphia. Okay. And their families went to church together and they spent a lot of time together. And as Daniel and Demery grew up, their friendship remained close. So basically from like kids till current at this point, they've been pretty tight. So that night of the favor, Demery told Daniel that he had gone to a hotel for a drug delivery and the guy that he met there tried to proposition him. Oh. And this resulted in an altercation and ultimately a shooting. And the man who was shot was James Jordan. On August 15th, 1993, the boys were arrested for murder. Turns out that these boneheads had made phone calls from James's car phone that traced back to them. They joy rode in the car for about three days, making calls to 1-900 sex numbers. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Also during these three days, these dum-dums <laughs> made home videos using poor James Jordan's video camera that was in the car. They filmed Daniel dancing, rapping, and wearing the NBA All-Star ring and NBA championship watch that James's son had given to him. And I'm just going to interject again. I don't know why, but... The details of these two things that, like, James Jordan is has on his person. You know, he's so proud of his son. Right. They're super identifiable because not many people have NBA championship rings. and Right. And I think that they knew that it was Michael Jordan's dad that they had killed. But what I'm saying is, like, this is memorabilia of his son that he's wearing because he's so fucking proud of his son. And they're just wearing it because they're being fucking dickheads. Like, they're using it as props in their weird videos and whatever. And it should be pointed out that Daniel absolutely helped Demery get rid of the body. It should also be noted that these boys didn't exactly have stellar pass. Assault, petty crimes, burglary, time spent in and out of jail and or prison. Which means when they were eventually caught, because of course they were, cops tried different tactics Threatening the death penalty, save themselves, turn on the other guy, so on and so forth. Right. Demery didn't do well with these tactics and ultimately ended up turning on Daniel. So this is from the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence site. Between the time Demery took the plea offer and his trial testimony, Demery changed his story regarding what happened that night. Yet the plea offer still stood. He testified that he and Daniel planned to rob the victim and that it was Daniel who fired the deadly shot. On March 21st, 1996, Daniel Green was convicted of first-degree felony murder. He was sentenced to life in prison plus 10 years, which we still don't really understand, like, the plus X amount of years thing on top Mm -hmm. of a life sentence. So if anybody at home listening can explain that. That doesn't make sense. We would love to hear. Right, but I also feel like I've heard in rap songs, 25 to life. I mean, this is like my knowledge of the judicial system. Based on the rap songs? Yes. Mm. I feel like Death Row Records really gave me a good education. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Daniel has maintained throughout that he was not involved with the robbery nor the murder. Daniel Green's convictions were upheld by the North Carolina Court of Appeals in 1998 and the North Carolina Supreme Court in 1999. 
The U.S. Supreme Court later denied review of the case. Daniel filed a motion for appropriate relief, which is also known as an MAR, in the year 2000. He was appointed counsel who did virtually nothing in the case for years. And then in 2008, after Daniel filed a supplemental MAR, the judge decreed that the case deserved review and that Daniel deserved new counsel. So in 2010, Daniel asked for the center's representation, but he already had been appointed counsel, so the center declined. Daniel's case was on the list of 230 cases impacted by the SBI lab's practices. But in 2016, Chris Muma, who you may remember, we've talked about her a bunch in this Mm -hmm. season, has agreed to take on Daniel's case. The reality is the same bloodstain evidence reporting issues from Greg's case were also true in Daniel's. And Chris took time to review his case and increasingly felt that Daniel wasn't involved in the robbery or murder. And at Daniel's request, the center agrees to join his co-counsel. Okay. So think fuck. I know it's like it's so tough with some of these cases because it's like you it's not like you're like rooting for him because he's well, done a lot say, of like, like he's this one's an interesting one because like the other sort of cases we've dealt with have been like people that you like can sympathize with or root for. Not that you can't sympathize with him, but like Oh, he's done some shitty stuff. So you could see why people would jump to a conclusion. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't deserve to be treated fairly like anyone else. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Just because he's done things in the past doesn't mean he did this. Right. Right. Exactly. So we're going to circle back to the audit, which we were covering in the previous episode. The audit done by Chris Wecker and Michael Wolf. They issued a report or released a report. And in that report, it noted that the review focused on historical practices and policies that are no longer in use at the North Carolina SBI forensic lab. And SBI special agents and former agents lamented then and to us recently that in the audit, the review was done through a 2010 modern science lens on old standards and practices that were no longer in place. And as Marilyn Miller, who we've talked about before, we consider her a forensic superhero noted, Swecker and Wolf and the people helping them simply looked at the science the lab was doing and how they were reporting. There was no modern science to apply to it. (laughs) As a cat meowing in the background. He is um, killing his toy. (laughs) Good job. Newman. (laughs) Get it, Newman. Okay. As Marilyn Miller, forensic superhero noted, Swecker and Wolf and the people helping them simply looked at the science the lab was doing and how they were reporting. Like there was no modern science to apply to what they were doing. Yeah. It was, they were just reporting shit. Well, they were reporting shit. They were misreporting. Right. And they were misrepresenting reports. And it had nothing to do with modern technology, science, or anything at all, really. Like, whatever they were complaining about just didn't make sense. So, Jennifer Elwell, she was the SBI agent in Derek Allen's case from the last episode. She testified, and during that testimony, she dismissed the audit completely. Of course she dismissed it, because it makes her look like a garbage person. Yep. (laughs) Though, she admitted... She admitted I suck at my job? (laughs) Well, she only read parts of the audit. Oh. Yeah. She criticized Swecker and Wolf, believing that the two former FBI agents just didn't understand forensic science. And that seemed to be the common consensus amongst the FBI's lab workers. Says the non-scientist. Right. Hmm. And like, this is the consensus like to this day. 
And interestingly enough, lab outsiders like ourselves, me and Jess, we kind of want scientists in the lab. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's too much to ask. No. <laughs> nope. I think if you should work, if you work in a science lab, you should actually know something about science. Yeah. Weird. Not just take that 40 hour the course. Yeah. Yeah. So, Elwell refused to quote acknowledge that either she or the SBI was an error. In 2011, DA's offices across the state had just buzzed through about 150 cases from the report. Now, remember that some cases were dismissed, some had been co-defendants, some, like, there were a lot of names, but there were also circumstances. Prosecutors claimed everything seemed above board as there were additional contributing factors in each of these cases that they felt led to the convictions. Confessions, eyewitnesses, ballistics... The executive director of the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys, Peg Dorer, is quoted as saying there was additional overwhelming evidence in every one of them. So cool, 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 cool. Except there's this guy named Daniel Green, and we're going to circle back to him. Okay, ready to get really pissed off? Yep. (laughs) I'm already there. (laughs) Cool. Yay. Here we go. (laughs) Law enforcement, including the sheriff, pointed to the phone calls made from James Jordan's car phone as the most important evidence. It directly linked Daniel and Demery to the car. But what defense attorneys at the time didn't know was that the second phone call was to a drug dealer named Hubert Deese. And that doesn't seem like that big of a deal until you find out that Hubert Deese is the sheriff's son. Oh, well, that's convenient. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. So it turns... It sounds like the plot of one of those, like, bad movies where it's like John Travolta's like the town sheriff like fighting crime well, there we carry on Jason Priestley <laughs> is probably in it <laughs> <laughs> or like Steven Seagal Ooh. with the ponytail though I digress <laughs> <laughs> or you improved so it also turns out that Demery and this guy Deese the drug dealing sheriff's son were former co-workers and they used to work about two miles from where James's body was found in South Carolina. Also, Deese, the drug-dealing son of the sheriff, who used to work with Demery, was never interviewed by the police. But he was interviewed by the state. But the state never informed the defense that they were doing. So Wait, he- the state, like the attorneys? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Prosecutors. So it was, it, they knew, but the defense never knew. Daniel's attorneys attempted to present their planned defense before the trial. They knew that the phone calls from the car phone were important, but they didn't know how exactly. So their defense was considered complete conjecture. Had they been informed, however, they would have known all of this. The defense attorneys were made aware that these phone calls were really important to the prosecution's case. Mm -hmm. Or like that was sort of what, sort of like with Greg Taylor, where the DA was like blood, 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 blood. Seventeen times. <laughs> no, so I feel like the prosecutors were making this like big deal out of these phone calls, and the defense attorneys were like, "Okay, so this big deal is being made out of them. Doesn't seem like that big a deal because all we know is that like they called sex numbers, like the one nine hundred sex oh, numbers. Right. Right, right, right. Those. Yeah. So like, why are these phone calls such a big deal? Because mm-hmm. really? they neglected to mention that other call. Exactly. Right. So they. So if Daniel's attorneys had known that the phone call was made to Hubert, they would have looked into that. Right, because that's that's leading towards reasonable doubt. Well, I mean, it would have affected how... It would have affected the case. Right, like how they presented their their defense. 
Because it goes to what that Peg Dorer woman said, the like head of the prosecutors or whatever. And she's like, all of these cases of the 230 cases, all of these cases had other circumstances going on in them. Right. So the blood evidence that was fucked up it didn't really matter because they would have gone to prison anyway. And that's not really fucking true. Right. The coroner noted in his report that there was no hole in the shirt that matched the bullet wound in James's chest. Law enforcement. That's interesting. Yeah. Law enforcement didn't get the shirt when collecting the evidence. Wait, what? Why would they? Well, the shirt It wasn't was... considered evidence. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because there was no bullet hole in it. But still shouldn't, like, if there's a dead body, wouldn't you take everything just, well, was, just in case? It was given to the funeral home. And then it was apparently buried because of an offending odor. But then the shirt was exhumed okay. and there was a hole in that exact spot where the coroner said there wasn't a hole. So you do the math. I mean, I'm not good at math, but <laughs> even though like one hole in, in a shirt that matches one hole in a body possibly means that one thing happened to both at the same time. Yes, you would think. How do you miss that, though? I don't know. I, I it, vaguely it like, remember this case happening like real time, like when all of this was going down. And I feel like it was covered pretty extensively. And I remember there being some big deal about the coroner and what he did in this. Well, do we think, is it, oh, am I getting ahead of us? Like, is it that he's just fucked up, like made a mistake or did something well, shady? Yeah, no. I mean, it could be. It, it could be that oh, he, We don't okay. cover it. Yeah, it could this. be that he just that was a moron. Weird. Or I also feel like, I mean, it's hard to say because like at this time, it was different times. So we but don't know think, if he was just like You would think if like, like somebody got or? shot, you know, if, if there's a body that has a bullet wound. You would scour every inch of the thing that that body was wearing yeah. to see if there was a hole. Did we mention that there was a plea deal for Demery? No. Well, there was. The kid, that kid was the star witness right. against Daniel. He was originally sentenced to life plus 40 years. And it turns out Demery made a deal with the DA making him eligible for parole in 2015. Priya did a ton of research on this case and couldn't find anything anywhere that he's been released. Yeah, I don't know if Demery is out oh. of prison. He's out right now. Oh. Um, which I mean, is Daniel great. is still in prison, for yeah. sure. Yeah. But Demery, don't I don't know, know if he... If he's um, still there or not. <laughs> but the defense was never informed about the plea deal, which we're pretty sure is not legal. Yeah. So. Seems that there's a lot of like weird shit that happened in this one. Under the rug and like... The prosecution didn't read out the list of their potential witnesses to the jury to ensure there was no fuckery. But speaking of fuckery, one of the jurors had actually been accused of sexual misconduct by two of the witnesses. What? Which could obviously <laughs> lead to a little bit of bias. <laughs> so. Come on. <laughs> yeah. It's like they're trying to get a high score with this one. Like, yeah. how many fuck ups can, how many different kinds of fuck ups can mm-hmm. we do? I mean, these are people's lives on the line right now. Not only that, but there is a person who was murdered. I'm sure that that person's family would like to have some kind of closure and whatnot. So all this fuckery is going on with all these fucking people. And it's keeping these wounds open for the victim's families. Right. Putting people in prison who maybe shouldn't be there. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, we're cracking jokes because it's heavy. But like, yeah, yeah, there's real. There's real stakes for all these people. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's 
if that were me, I would be like furious at like all these things that you want to trust in the justice system and hope that, you know, should you ever need it, that it's fair and just. And yeah. like, that's what the whole point of this is, is that like, it's not always. Mm-hmm. No. And it's not fair. No. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So there was also a guy who claimed Daniel had robbed him. But it turns out this guy was pretty racist and was like, well, all black folks look alike. And he actually said That's that. That's nice. Yeah. And he is canceled for numerous Ugh. reasons. Yeah. Number one. There's a lot of terrible coming nice. from all angles in this one. Jesus. Okay. Daniel's defense attorneys prepared affidavits that show Jennifer Elwell of the SBI. Remember her? Yep. A state forensic expert. Uh, Quotes. Yeah. <laughs> Run that word. Expert. <laughs> recanted her own testimony. She testified that she found James Jordan's blood in his car, but her tests were actually inconclusive. She admitted to withholding the results of four inconclusive tests that could have undermined the prosecutor's theory of how James died. Wow. Daniel's attorneys claim the DA intentionally exaggerated Elwell's findings during the trial and failed to share her notes from the inconclusive tests. Apparently, that may have violated the trial judge's order on the exchange of evidence. In fact, the judge stated in a sworn affidavit that the blood tests were material evidence and withholding them was a violation of his order. So it actually did violate Yeah, like not apparent, like... Yeah. There's just so much like, you know, I'm not an attorney, obviously, but like I've seen enough, you know, like The Good Wife and other shows where like that's, they're clearly doing that intentionally. They're trying to withhold information because it's like, oh, that's bad for our case. So we just can't let them see it because then they're going to win. And that's the whole problem. Like that's, we, what it feels that's like. what we talked about a few episodes. I forget which episode it was, but like the system needs to stop being about let's win. Yeah. Yeah. Like what's, what are the facts? And then you make an informed decision based on the facts, whether the person did it or they didn't, as opposed to like, well, my side's beating your side and how I'm going to beat you is by not giving you all the information. Yeah. Cause that's cheating. Mm-hmm. I feel like everybody should listen to ear hustle. That podcast I was talking about earlier Possibly prior to recording. Prior to yeah, recording. Yeah, prior to recording. Yeah. But I was I brought up Ear Hustle, which I've been re-listening to. Chris Mooma had actually recommended it to us like a year and a half ago. And I listened to about four or five episodes. And when I was talking to my sister the other week, she recommended it to me. And I was like, Oh yeah, I need to go back and and check it out. Yeah. So I've been listening to it on the way to work and home from work. And some episodes I ball, whatever. Like it's a hard podcast to listen to but they're doing really incredible work in humanizing convicts or incarcerated peoples in a way that nobody else has done and i feel like the main thing that needs to happen in the system is prosecution and defense and judges and cops and everybody involved need to view the guilty the allegedly guilty as human beings And go from that place rather than going from the place, this is a criminal. Right. Right. Treating it like a case. Well, I mean, like our system is supposed to be built on innocent until proven guilty, but that's not really the case. Not really Mm -hmm. reflected in the practice. It's like we picked you as the guilty person, so now we're just going to. All right. So right after Daniel was convicted, Elwell claimed she was ordered by a supervisor to destroy the, quote, only known samples of James's blood. Sorry. How is that allowed? I meant to say under what, under what reasoning? We have no idea. I do know that she had said that she'd never been ordered to do that by another supervisor. 
But why wouldn't she flag that for anybody else if she's, you know, an upstanding member, you know, of that organization? Like, if somebody, well, if you're claiming she's painting herself to be that, right? Like, Nobody else if, is. if I were in that situation, I'd be like, uh, this seems not okay and not legal because mm-hmm. you're supposed to preserve evidence in case there's appeals or retrials or right. anything. Right. And to destroy it seems, not again, good. Yeah. to be cheating. Right. Yeah. To ensure that you win. Right. Because if there's no evidence to test later. Right. How can you refute right. the testimony of the quote expert. unquote expert? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big flaw. Daniel's defense attorney stated that they were never told that the evidence had been destroyed. It just feels like the defense like gets the short stick with yeah, everything. Yeah. yeah, that's some bullshit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Remember that Peg Dorachik, the executive director of the North Carolina Conference of Dr- District Attorneys? She was the one who had said there were additional... That in all of the cases, the 230 cases, there were additional overwhelming evidence in every one of those cases. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That chick. Right. So, basically saying, like, well, these people deserve it because there were other things. Exactly. That qualify them to be guilty. The confessions and the eyewitnesses and the whatever. And we're, like, we're listing off all of the stuff that Daniel Green, all of those, you know, circumstances that he has. Mm Mm-hmm. In addition to the blood evidence, and all of that is complete bullshit. Right. But we all know how much jurors, like, put on a scientist. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, as an expert gets on oh, the yeah. stand. Yeah, you're, well, because it, it's the same thing. You, as humans, you want to have faith in, you know, that the, the sort of constructs and things that are put in place are there to... A scientific expert is, by definition, like an expert in that field. Yeah. So, oh, like, I'm an idiot. I don't know anything about science. For sure. So, if someone's sitting there in a, preferably a white lab coat with a pocket protector, <laughs> telling me that, like, science, 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 I'm like, oh. It's science. What's your science song? Science, science. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if he's telling me that. that, then, yeah. Okay, I believe you. Exactly. Okay. So, plus, one of Daniel's attorneys said the judge who sentenced Mr. Green to life in prison, plus those fucking 10 years, filed an affidavit with today's motion stating that if Agent Elwell has changed her opinion about the substance found in the Lexus, then her testimony at trial would constitute false and misleading testimony on material fact. Right. The blood evidence was critical to to securing Mr. Green's conviction because it was the only physical evidence supporting Larry Demery's version of events. Well, yeah, because that's where it's like, you're, they're under oath. You're lying. You know you're lying. Like, you should get in trouble. You should be in jail. Not, well, I mean, in this case, I don't know where it's going just yet. But like, if you're the person that goes up there and fucking lies... Right. Then you should get in trouble, not just get like a slap on the wrist. Absolutely. Like there should be consequences. You, there, there should be the same consequences as anyone. Like if I get on the stand and lie about something, then I can go to jail for yeah. perjury. Mm-hmm. Why is it not applying to these fucking knuckleheads? Mm-hmm. There's like a protective shield like, yeah. around them. Yeah. You can't go like, my bad. That was my supervisor. No, you still fucking lied. You knew it was wrong. Mm-hmm. So Daniel's still in prison and Chris Muma of the NCCAI is going to get him out. We're sure of it. Oh, so he's I, still in prison now? Yeah. Like, he's fucking still in prison to this day. It's 2019. 
And one thing that I want to say about Chris Moma is she goes through like a huge process yes. in terms of vetting the people oh, yeah. that she yeah, she can only take on so many cases. Right. So she really believes. So she in believes him. he's innocent. Yeah. Yes. And I feel like once she believes yeah. that somebody is innocent, that person is actually innocent. Mm. Because she told us, I don't know if we said it in the first episode, but I she think told we us, did. Or, but she said that. What she does is she's tr- she tries to prove the person guilty from every fucking angle. Mm-hmm. So her potential right, that client was like the um, what was that making a murderer? Like the woman who's in in the new woman, the new yeah, okay, the dark haired lady. I can't remember her name, but like she has a similar process where like if I'm going to take on your case to prove you're innocent, yeah. I want to see if you're guilty. So she treats it as if she's a prosecutor, right? And like let and me smart. see if you did it or not. Yeah. And then when she's like, "There's no way you could fucking do this." Then she's like, okay, then I'm on board. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, because you, I would think, I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, again, I'm not a, you know, attorney or anything like that, but it makes sense. I'm not going to defend somebody that I am not sure right. is innocent. Right. Like you, you want to know what you, you're up against. Exactly. You wouldn't, you wouldn't walk into a situation like, well, hopefully that I picked the right one. Right. Like you want to know and feel 100% confident that like, no. This person couldn't possibly have done it. If you're in a position to do that, to right. do that, like there are public Where defenders who are not. Right. No, of course, oh. there are super hardworking people that like just. It's also a nature, the nature of the system that needs to be fixed is that there's not enough people to accurately like research and investigate these cases to make sure 100 percent someone's guilty or innocent. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Okay, we're rooting for Chris Muma to yeah. help. Go, Green. Chris. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to go back to Derek Allen now, which was the really rough case yeah. that we were yeah. dealing with in the previous episode. So according to the News and Observer, the hearing for Derek Allen in Durham also touched on the issue of whether the laboratory is independent or whether it tips the scales of justice in the courtroom by favoring prosecutors and police over defendants, which is sort of the question we've been asking about the lab this well, entire... Well, it doesn't seem to really be a question anymore. It's like, <laughs> yes, it is tipping the scales. <laughs> Cheaters. <laughs> so we, <clears throat> we have mentioned the National Academy of Science, which I said in a full-on Minnesota accent in an earlier episode. Minnesota. Because I'm from Minnesota. All right? <laughs> Don't worry. Jess will be busting out her Rhode Island accent any minute now. Would you and like the bar? <laughs> <laughs> and Keith's Florida accent is unmistakable. Oh, yes. Because we say orange instead of orange. Because <laughs> it has an A-H at the beginning. <laughs> we just add an R so at Florida the end of oranges. any word. Florida oranges. Florida oranges. Florida. Okay. Well, my name would be Jessica. In Rhode Island? <laughs> mm-hmm. Just throw an R on it. Anyway, we mentioned the NAS report that was issued in 2009. We're going to get into that in a later episode, but for the purpose of this episode, we will tell you that this report was and is incredibly important for better practices and standards in the forensic science field. And this report recommended that there was a need for crime labs to be independent, especially that they should be out from under the purview of police or prosecutors. Did there really need to be a report, though, to, like, make that point? Because it's sort of... Yeah. yeah. Apparently so. Have you listened to our podcast? No. <laughs> I don't like the sound of my voice. <laughs> so a former judge, a guy named Joe John, was appointed interim director of the SBI crime lab by Attorney General Roy Cooper in 2010. So this guy, Joe John, he did not have a science background. Yeah. Seems to be a consistent 
pattern. Yeah, but let's make him the director of the SPI yeah. crime lab. Yeah. You the like inter- science, right? Sure. <laughs> Qualify. Stamp. Done. <laughs> Have you heard of science? Can you spell Great. science? <laughs> the move here that Attorney General Roy Cooper made of appointing him the interim director was generally frowned upon by the public and people who were working in sort of this arena. It was frowned upon because of this lack of science background. Right. Fair. Nobody (laughs) in this fucking lab seemed to have a fucking science background. Yeah. And that's kind of how we got to where we got was the lack of science. Maybe we should quit TV and go do science. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds super easy. Apparently hiring. Yeah. Yeah. Joe John, who we know as a lack of science science person, was interviewed by the News and Observer. He told them that his impression after a month on the job was that lab workers were not puppets of law enforcement. Yeah, so that was his closed. assessment. Done. Oh, yeah. great. I, Thanks, I believe him. John. So this dude said that lab analysts told him they believed their customer was the criminal justice system as a whole. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, maybe we shouldn't put the word criminal in there, sort of like we were talking about before, that these are fucking human beings. Yeah. Hmm. So how about some true, factual, transparent science is the customer for the laboratory? But then again, I'm usually accused of being too idealistic. Yeah, cut it out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You want to be fair, whatever. I know. Boring. So Joe John said that no one in his lab was under the thumb of police and prosecutors. But the News and Observer reported differently. Elwell identified a different client. She said the lab was drawing new guidelines to provide a stricter standard of customer service for our client, that being the state of North Carolina. Hmm. Hmm. I find it weird that she used the term customer service. It's not like you work at Target and like, like, I need to return this bath soap because it doesn't, you know, it's... uh, It's not soapy enough. Yeah. Like, it's not customer service. Like, you're... Also, the state is I don't know what I want to say, but I just, like, uh, anger, 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 anger. You guys understand. Yeah. Yes. No, it's, uh, I don't even know how to say that. What do I want to say? I find it hard to believe that that there's this sort of, like, active, is negligence the word I want to use? It's what I said before. Like, you know that what you're doing is wrong. Yeah. You know you're not, like, your client like the fact that you're even saying client is yeah. an issue for me cover too. cover up the negligence. Yeah. It's, it's it's actively covering up the truth. Yeah, like you know what you're doing is wrong. Yeah, but you're you're trying to like find some like ways around what you're doing. It's like, well, uh, we work for the state. You don't work for this. You don't work for the prosecutors. You don't work for anybody. Like right. your job is to just scientifically provide information. Like you are actually sworn law enforcement officers. And to become a sworn law enforcement officer, it's to protect and serve the people. Yeah. Right. So your customer is not the prosecutors. Masked it's not as the state. state. It, well, I like, think yeah. just the, think using the terms the like customer like, service and client and stuff, it's gross. It's people's lives. Yeah. People, totally have, lost, people have lost their lives and other people's lives could be taken away from them. Yeah. By what you do. So it's like you're not providing customer service and it's not for a client. Like you're just supposed to provide facts and information to make an informed decision about whether somebody did something or not. Right. And the thing that also really pisses me off about all of this inaccurate science and like these active cover-ups is that the victims of the crimes 
have families. And so there are appeals there for the people who are wrongfully imprisoned. There are appeals. There are all these like different ways of trying to get out of this fucked up situation that they were forced into through no fault of their own. And all of a sudden, like you have all these different court cases or trials and the families of the victims have to be re-victimized. Well, yeah, I mean, during all of it, like I think people don't put themselves in other people's shoes enough, like put yourself in a situation where like, say that you're either you're someone you care about was killed or accused of killing somebody. And if someone's referring to, you know, them as customer service or clients or this, like I'm going to throw something heavy at your face. Yeah. (laughs) Like I'm going to share that. I'm really frustrated with the way you're handling or speaking about like the pain that you're going through. Yeah, It's a human. Yeah. Yeah. People forget that. Yeah. There's There's a huge disconnect. Yeah. yeah, there's a level of empathy that just is not there. No. I think the I moral like of the story is cheated. people suck. Mm. Yeah. Even ones in lab coats who know nothing about science. <laughs> it is interesting to note, though, that Joe John did an internal investigation of the lab at the direction of the DA's office. The lab found an additional 74 cases that were not in the audit. 74 more? Mm-hmm. But they were found by hand-reviewing files that had been screened electronically. So... Our girl, Jennifer Elwell, was the analyst in 38 of the 74 cases. Dever did one. Wait, what? Yeah. That's that's not half, is it? 38 is that half? out of 74. Yeah, that was half? She sucks. <laughs> and Dever had one case, and the other usual suspects accounted for the rest. So Dever had about 50 cases in the independent audit done by Swecker and Wolf. Elwell had 37. So with this additional list, Elwell reported in that manner in over 70 cases. Oh, she gets the prize for being the shittiest lab tech in the building. (laughs) Does she? she? Oh, she's not the shittiest? Wait. Deaver's still at about 50. Spittle, Deaver's superior had 90 cases out of the 230 in the audit and 26 in this internal audit. So let's also remind everyone that former SBI director Robin Pendergraft said that problems at the SBI crime lab were just one guy. Uh, so, sure. Hi, liar. <laughs> so these cases need to be reviewed, too. And yeah, The 74. Yeah. In addition to the, the so other. So that's like 350 ones. cases now? Because it was like two something? It was 230. 230. 230. So it's 304. So these cases need to be reviewed, too. And the DAs were planning on doing that. Okay. But defense attorneys were reasonably worried about prosecutors reviewing the cases, which is fair. Because there's a billion of them. Uh Uh-huh. And also, they're prosecutors. And they're not always... Unbiased. Diane Savage, who we've mentioned before, who Priya likes to mention that she has a superhero name. She totally does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Has had the SBI crime lab in her crosshairs for a very, very long time. And she's quoted as saying that there was no way for prosecutors to know how a jury would would respond if it learned about improperly handled evidence. If only there was a way prosecutors could know how juries would respond to an FBI crime lab analyst shitty work in a case. If only there was a way. How would they know? How would they know? Is there a way? Maybe by reading an article from the News and Observer who interviewed the foreman of a jury in Kirk Turner's case where Gerald Thomas did his little experiments. Do you remember that? And altered government documents illegally. Remember that? Like the guy that did the little like the, oh, the, uh, the, knife, the, the knife swipey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Super so, yeah. scientific. Super scientific. Yeah. The foreman said jurors were stunned by the SBI's conduct. 
When asked about Gerald Thomas, he said, politically, socially, religiously, I'm conservative. I'm a law and order man. But I don't know what other word to use but fraud. Exactly. Like, you're fucking cheating. Yeah. Yeah. We Thank concur. You. Insert name Thank here. Thank you, Foreman. Jury, jury man. But obviously, prosecutors didn't agree. They felt by only them looking through the cases, that would result in true justice. Mm -hmm. Oh, right? of course. Do as I say, not as I do. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Wake County District Attorney Willoughby looked through all of the cases that went through his office. To him, they all appeared to be fine. Oh, totally. Yeah. You might remember him from episode two in Greg Taylor's case. Willoughby knew that the man who potentially falsely confessed to the murder that Greg was accused of, that guy inexplicably named Craig Taylor. Not Craig Taylor. <laughs> Craig, C-R-A-I-G, <laughs> Taylor. Colin Willoughby knew that Craig Taylor had also allegedly confessed to a number of other crimes and that his testimony would probably not be particularly credible. It's supposed that Willoughby had beef with the Innocence Inquiry Commission and the three-judge panel and was potentially, this was our guess, using Craig Taylor as an example of why the IIC and the panel wouldn't work. So, he's clearly a real peach of a guy. He stated that the status of his cases would not change. He said, quote, In the Wake County cases, most were cases with confessions, and the confessions came before there was any blood analysis done by the lab. We have to accept the science as science, whether helpful or not. But I don't think that anyone is tilting the scale in favor of the prosecutors. This guy is a Except real maybe the prosecutors. Yeah, but also, all these people are attorneys, and their job is to try to find loopholes and ways around things and right. things like that. Like you get that's, creative. That's a, you spin. It's a spin that's factory. A yeah, mm -hmm. like that's part of your job. So yeah. like, he's not going to go, okay. He's going to go, well, no, look over here. And right. oh, well, we did everything according to the rules, but right. your rules are bullshit. So we have a video where he thinks that people are being emotional because they didn't like the way things went 10 or 15 years ago. That there may have been other contributing factors. And we'll link this, obviously, in our research when we, when we post the episode, but we're going to play it for Keith right now. You can't discount, you can't just sort of pretend that, like, you didn't screw or falsify or not provide all the information with the supposition, like, well, there may have been other evidence. Right. Like, no. That's what I was like, getting at. you went to court with this evidence, and now that you're being called on it, you're like, well, the conviction should stand because there may be something else that they mm -hmm. did. No. Like, you went in there and you cheated. Mm-hmm. And you're getting called on it and taking a task for it. And, like, that's it. Yeah. Also, like, that's why... And also, fuck you for telling people to not have emotions about somebody's life. Right? Fuck yeah. Yeah. Colin Willoughby. And there's a case that we are not covering in our season, but one that is really close to our hearts. It's a guy named Floyd Brown. And he had a very low IQ. And he confessed to the murder of a neighbor woman. And there was a six-page written confession of his. Using words that he couldn't possibly yeah. know. It's like he was not capable of that. No. Absolutely not. When these prosecutors are talking about all of these extenuating circumstances beyond the blood analysis, well, the reality is those circumstances are probably bullshit as well. Yeah. And the thing that binds them together is this fucking blood evidence. Right. But if you take away the blood evidence, then you have to look at these other things more closely. And nobody wants to do that because they're all bullshit. Yeah. But there's another point to be made. When the report of the independent audit was released, Chris Wecker pointed out that the way the SBI's lab reported impacted the decisions that were made. It could have resulted in situations where information that was material and favorable to the defendant was not disclosed. So, sure, 
there are those who might have had other evidence against them. Mm -hmm. And with the addition of blood evidence, these people may have pled guilty, as in Derek Allen's case with the Alford plea, which wasn't exactly pleading guilty, but acknowledging that the state had strong enough bloodstain evidence against him that he felt that he might die. Right, but what, whether or not, like, there is additional evidence, like, you're it's apples and oranges. Like, you had evidence that was not accurate you presented inaccurate information or you left out important information mm -hmm. so like just on principle that everything needs to be reevaluated because what else it did should. you not yeah you know what else did you not come clean about right absolutely yeah i agree it is apples and oranges so you're saying what else did you not come clean about like the lab was one who lied let's give prosecutors like a little bit of a benefit of a doubt here they don't know that they're it's a Absolutely. lie like and yeah that well may be the case we don't know that they don't know true but also we don't know that they do know right. so like in greg's case where blood was brought up 17 times his case hinged on that evidence right but there was a bunch of other evidence the jailhouse informant but it just there's all these other circumstances that have really nothing to do with the blood. Right. But prosecutors, because of what we've already discussed, will hang their hat on expert testimony yeah. of scientists. Right. So maybe if they didn't have that expert testimony, if they didn't have that science, maybe they'd be looking at the jailhouse informant a little more closely. But as soon as they get that evidence, they don't need to. Right. Right. In other cases, this alleged blood evidence may have been presented at trial by an expert witness, and the guilty defendant may have give, been given a harsher sentence. And some people might say, well, that's fine. He or she were, or they were guilty, but that's not how the justice system is supposed to work. They're, it's basically contributing to an unjust system. Right. And Chris Muma said, I don't think there's anybody who would be surprised that the district attorneys felt there was other evidence of guilt. That's why the cases were prosecuted in the first place. She wanted defense attorneys to review the cases as well as the prosecutors, which is like, I I feel like that's a fair ask. I don't yeah. think it should just be one sided. No. Yeah, you know, like, and I'll you just because you're like just assuming you those earlier. people are going to cheat again, right? And it's like you don't want somebody to have like an unfair stack of information, right? Well, and if, be able I, to and use if I was the defense want. attorney, I'd be like, "Fuck you! You've already you've just been caught not being honest, right? So now so I'm all of a sudden supposed you? to trust that you're going to be honest this time? Nope." No. Exactly. Yeah. SBI Director Greg McLeod acknowledged the concern raised by defense attorneys in the state and urged prosecutors to complete their case files for review. We don't know if that actually happened. We don't know if other sections of the lab were audited with the same thorough measures as the bloodstain analysis unit was. But one of the major problems with the lab was a lack of transparency. Yeah. So this section is called PRIA GOES OFF in all caps. Oh, jeez. <laughs> So we're doing this conversational podcast. We've got Rosé. We've got cats. We've got all of us. <laughs> and I can talk true crime all day, but these cases really do get to me. And for some reason, I'm stuck on James Jordan's ring and the watch. That man was so damn proud of his son's accomplishments that he was wearing these accessories as everyday wear. His kid doesn't get to see him anymore because of Demery. Those accessories, which should be points of pride for his kid and for him, are now tainted because Demery decided that he would rob and kill him. Leslie Lincoln doesn't get to see her mother anymore because of some unknown murder. Jaquetta Thomas's sister doesn't get to see her sister. Jennifer Turner's children don't have a mom. Derek Allen's former girlfriend has had to deal with the significant loss of her baby. It sucks and it makes me angry that these prosecutors and lab defenders can be so goddamn blasé. 
They are fucking with so many people's lives. And the other thing that strikes me in all of these cases is the sheer length of time that they take. And that time affects everyone. You've got a mother who lost her baby who has no idea why her baby is gone. If there was anything she could have done and is getting constant reminders for nearly 20 years as the guy who didn't kill her baby is just trying to get his own life back. A lot of these cases are big. They make the papers. You've got a guy who's lost his dad and he happens to be famous. I remember when all of this was first happening, it made national news. It does every time there's something new in the case. With Chris Muma working on it, it get, it's going to get more airtime. And even this podcast contributes to that. Even though we're trying to do good here, we're also contributing potential harm to all of the people affected by the loss of these victims. We hope that our contribution can be forgiven. The point is, the shit that went down at the SBI, it affects everyone. Jennifer Elwell can't be bothered to read the audit criticizing her work. Jed Tobb is being flippant in regards to it. It's disgusting. These are people's lives, and no one is getting true justice out of these injustices. Soapbox moment over. Let's have a little good news. There was progress. This next section is called Clean Up in Aisle 6, and Jess is going to <laughs> I'm going to clean it up. We have been assured that all of the names on both lists, the audit report and the internal investigation report, have been thoroughly looked into and that justice has been and is being pursued, as in Daniel Green's case. Mm -hmm. Also, after the audit was released, which included 37 of Jennifer Elwell's cases, she was suspended, which is good. Her additional 38 cases weren't found out about until months later. Did she get fired? Oh, okay. We don't know. Don't know. It's don't unknown know. whether or yeah. not she's still with the SBI. I've looked into yeah. it deeply. Um, hit us up, girl. Let's know what you're up to. Yeah, hit us up. <laughs> you're Take listening. Take a break from all that science. Yeah, we don't know. But Dwayne Deaver was placed on investigatory placement that day. He was suspended with pay. Yeah. Mm. On the while they so investigated that the day that the report was released. Yes, which meant he couldn't work. But yeah, it was paid. It seems like that he got like a. A sweet deal. Yeah. I'd be like, we'll get into that. And that's like when, when you get in trouble and your parents send you to your room, but that's where your PlayStation is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Attorney General Cooper said, also said that the SBI was going to make changes to its procedures, including automating historical lab reports, appointing a lab ombudsman, and making lab policies publicly available, as recommended in the audit report. He pledged to send the cases flags in the audit back to the courts for review, which is great. So changes are happening, and the wrongfully convicted are getting out of prison, some after decades of being behind bars. And it turns out, getting out is a lot harder than it seems. We'll look into the issues that exonerees can face in our next episode. The cost is effed up. Thank you so much for listening. At the end of each episode, we'd like to highlight the work being done for justice reform, science, and the prevention of wrongful convictions and provide information on where, if you're as fucking pissed off at hearing all of these stories as we are in telling them, you can throw some money at this or volunteer or whatever you can do. So the work that Chris does is incredible. The NCCAI North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence is a nonprofit organization. And if you'd like to support the work that she and everyone involved in that organization does on a daily basis, their website is www.nccai.org. Please throw money at them. And as always, we'd love for you to join us on our social media, where we'll be posting links to our research, photos, and videos on our Facebook page. You can find us on all platforms, Facebook, Insta, and Twitter at Podcast. That's E-F-F-E-D-U-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. If you need to reach us via email, it's the same deal. Podcast at gmail.com. 
And finally, we don't like to shill for ourselves, but this podcast isn't about us. Fucked Up or Effed Up is about helping other people, but in order to do that, we need to get the word out. So if you have a moment to spare, please rate us on whatever app you use to listen to us. It will help us become more visible and help us elevate the voices of the victims and survivors who have been impacted. If you have more than a moment and want to help us get the word out, please tell people, share links. The more people know about these injustices, the more changes that can be made. Let's create a fucking social injustice league and change the fucked up world. Effed up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Done. Effed Up is executive produced by myself, Priya Hubbard, and Jessica Borges. Research and story is by me, Priya Hubbard. Executive Inquisitor is Keith Burke. Episode recaps written by Brandy Abbott. Social media hall monitors, Brandy Abbott and Paloma Diaz. Cover art is by Allie Kelly. You can find her work at Allie Kelly Illustrations on Instagram. That's A-L-L-I-E. K-E-L-L-E-Y illustrations on Instagram. Our music is composed by Allegra Borges. Executive in charge of support, Jeff Berg. Technical consultant, Randy Maringer of Maringer and Unger. On-air distractions provided by Nima and Newman, a.k.a. Newman. Additional investigations are provided by Cat Detectives, Monsieur Hercule Poirot and Captain Hastings. Special thanks to Chris Muma. I just want to say John, John, John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. His name is my name too. Whenever we go out, the people always shout singing John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. Nobody went to camp? Keep it scared. I don't know that song. <laughs> Did you not go to camp? Gasp. I don't do nature, guys. I watched Bug Juice on Disney. <laughs> I'm, I'm, oh, is that how you found out? I don't know. I'm more of an indoor girl. <laughs> I didn't go to camp. I just, I, my parents couldn't afford it. <laughs> I had to go to Bible camp. Oh. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't even in Boy Scouts. I wasn't even cool enough for Boy Scouts. Oh, I did do Girl Scouts for like a little bit until my mom made me quit. I don't know why. Something weird must have happened. I listened to Prince. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got to get back to this. <laughs> I like dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs>